Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Hello, my name is Jane Rhodes, and I'm Dean for the Study of Race and Ethnicity and Professor of American Studies at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Prior to taking this position, I was a professor in the Department of Ethnic Studies at the University of California, San Diego, and I've also taught at the School of Journalism at Indiana University. I was a former journalist before going into higher education, and I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I will be reading from Framing the Black Panthers, The Spectacular Rise of a Black Power Icon, published by the New Press in 2007. This book is a study of the relationship between the media and the Black Panther Party during the group's early years, 1967 to 1970. The book chronicles the rise and enormous public visibility of the Black Panthers, how they were covered by the media, including the Black press, and how the Panthers became adept at controlling their mediated image. This book discusses this through the concept of framing, how the media selectively presents controversial ideas and social movements in ways that conform to dominant political ideologies. I will be reading sections from the early part of the book so that uh, we can have a sense of the beginnings of the Black Panther Party and their relationship to the media. In the 1960s, Oakland, California, was representative of the West's economic and racial woes. The San Francisco Bay Area's industrial base, particularly the growth of naval shipyards, was a magnet for African-American migrants seeking employment in the region. During World War II, black Southerners were actively recruited to work on the docks and in the warehouses of Oakland and San Francisco. But post-war deindustrialization shook the region's economy, displacing black workers and throwing many into poverty. Oakland's overall population declined between 1950 and 1970, with whites fleeing the city in large numbers. During the same period, the number of blacks grew by 150 percent, making them a quarter of the total population. In the 1960s, two-thirds of Oakland's non-white population lived in poverty. There was an acute housing shortage, and urban renewal projects were decimating black neighborhoods. By the era of the Black Panther Party, the city was in a full-fledged crisis. In 1960, two-thirds of the Bay Area's black workers were in semi-skilled, unskilled, or service positions, and a quarter of black teenagers were unemployed. Apprenticeships were closed to them, and new industries refused to hire blacks. Thus, as Quintard Taylor noted, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, future founders of the Black Panther Party, were part of a disadvantaged generation who, unlike their shipbuilding parents, could not secure places in the post-war Bay Area economy. Despite the increasing number of blacks in Oakland, it remained a largely segregated city. Poor and minority residents were confined to the flatlands, while affluent whites settled in the hills overlooking San Francisco Bay. Local retailers were notorious for refusing to hire blacks. There were only 19 black officers out of 600 on the Oakland police force. And the city's one daily newspaper, the Oakland Tribune, had a reputation for ignoring the concerns of black residents. The Nolan family, one of the pillars of Oakland's economy, owned the Tribune. Former Republican Senator William Nolan took over as publisher during the 1960s and used the newspaper as a platform to critique the social movements of the day. 
When UC Berkeley students demanded an end to the ban on campus political activities, Nolan referred to the university as the Little Red Schoolhouse and actively opposed the student campaign. He steadfastly defended the Oakland police against charges of racism and harassment, and he resisted the establishment of anti-poverty programs during the Johnson administration. The Tribune would not welcome the arrival of more radical black activism. In early 1967, small groups of Black Panthers conducted armed patrols of black neighborhoods in Oakland and nearby Richmond to confront what they deemed to be racially motivated acts of police brutality. This activity garnered attention and support from the community, but little from the press. The group rose from obscurity in February when Oakland's Black Panthers volunteered to provide security for a visit by Malcolm X's widow, Betty Shabazz. Newton and Seal were hoping to overshadow a rival group calling themselves the Black Panther Party of Northern California, and they sought a connection with the legacy of Malcolm X. Dressed in their uniform of black beret, leather jacket, and guns, they escorted Shabazz from San Francisco International Airport to the offices of Ramparts Magazine, where she was going to be interviewed. Police descended on the magazine's San Francisco offices, followed by a group of local reporters. According to Bobby Seal, a reporter and cameraman from the ABC affiliate station pursued the action as the Panthers shouted down the police and got into a shoving match. The cameras captured Huey Newton staring down a policeman poised to pull his weapon, taunting him, Okay, you big fat racist pig, draw your gun! The Panthers, Shabazz, and the police emerged unscathed, but Bay Area residents had their first glimpse of the Panthers' bravado on local TV. The print media failed to report on the Panthers' early activities until April 1967, when the San Francisco Sunday Chronicle and Examiner put them on page one. The article, It's All Legal, Oakland's Black Panthers Wear Guns, Talk Revolution, sought to tell local readers about this new, threatening organization that was capturing the public imagination. In this news account, the Black Panthers were described as, quote, stars of a movie melodrama of revolution a theme that would follow the group throughout its tenure. The writer was captivated by Newton's physical attractiveness and the Panthers' dramatic uniform. He was also struck by the way guns were deployed as a central part of their image. Quote, The melodrama is real. The guns are real. The two young men are real revolutionaries. The lengthy article also confirmed the suspicions that the Black Panthers were blatantly anti-white and outlined parts of their 10-point platform, including their indictment of police occupation of black neighborhoods and opposition to black participation in the Vietnam War. Why and how the Panthers armed themselves was a crucial focus. The reporter noted that, quote, not much can be done about the guns under California law, which allowed their public display. The accompanying photograph, perhaps the first to appear in a major newspaper, showed Seal and Newton outside the group's headquarters, appearing both confident and defiant in their paramilitary attire with Newton brandishing a shotgun. The caption read, quote, They make no bones about being anti-white or about being revolutionaries. Hence, the Panthers were framed as a threatening entity to be feared, particularly by whites. Although their platform was indistinct, what they represented was not. These visual and verbal images tapped into white Americans' primal fears of black male sexuality, black American violence, and the potential of an all-out race war. Quote, the figure of the black male out of control is a cultural nightmare for whites, notes one media scholar John Fisk. 
Subsequent media coverage continued in this manner. But it was not until their arrival at the California Capitol the next month that the national elite media took notice of the group. On May 2, 1967, a group of 30 young black men and women wearing black berets and dark glasses, some carrying weapons, assembled at the California State Capitol in Sacramento to protest a pending gun control bill. The legislation had been introduced by Assemblyman Don Mulford in part to stifle the Panthers' open use of guns. The Black Panthers seized on this issue to heighten their visibility. Newton knew that their carefully planned appearance at the Capitol would turn into a colossal media event. He also anticipated the media framing of the incident, predicting, now the papers are going to call us thugs and hoodlums. On this particular spring day, the armed Panther delegation met a startled press corps, including wire service stringers who were assembled for the usual political stories. The protesters marched past Governor Ronald Reagan, who was busy greeting a group of school children. Amid the commotion, Bobby Seale stood on the Capitol steps and read a statement asserting that the proposed gun bill was, quote, aimed at keeping black people disarmed and powerless, and was part of a policy of terror, brutality, murder, and repression of black people. Seale announced, The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense believes that the time has come for black people to arm themselves against this terror before it is too late. Still, and television cameras recorded the Panthers being jostled by police and later searched and arrested against a backdrop of shouting and disarray. Next, the Panthers strode into the visitors' gallery of the legislative chambers in a scene described as a media circus. News cameramen and photographers jumped back and forth in front of them, filming and clicking away. One chronicler of the event blamed the media for inflaming the situation. They said the rally of the small group of Black Panthers became less placid as newsmen flocked around, shouting questions and snapping pictures. Reporters asked Seal to read the manifesto twice more so they could get it right. Meanwhile, some in the Panther delegation scuffled with police and Capitol security guards. Over the din, the broadcast microphones captured one man's voice shouting, Am I arrested? Am I arrested? Get your hands off of me! As the Panthers left the legislature building, they were followed by the police, who searched them at a nearby gas station confiscated their guns, and charged most of them with assorted violations, including intent to disrupt legislative proceedings. Bobby Seale remembered that as the Panthers left the state capitol, ranting about repression and racism, some stunned whites in the crowd mumbled the words, niggers with guns, niggers with guns. This racialized anxiety was reflected in the Associated Press photo selected by the Times, which showed several stern-faced Panthers wearing black berets and holding rifles at attention in a corridor of the Capitol. This image was America's visual introduction to the Black Panther Party, and it was guaranteed to stir fear and concern in a populace already racked by war and social unrest. The scant coverage was shaped in part by the reliance on the wire services to report this story. The New York Times, exerting its authority as leader of the East Coast media establishment, determined that the story had minimal national importance. Without a reporter based in Sacramento, the New York Times had little first-hand access to the event. The press beyond the San Francisco Bay Area knew little or nothing about the Panthers, leading them to search for categories to construct a media frame. These new media subjects shared some of the characteristics of student anti-war protesters and black civil rights activists. But the Panthers' symbolic use of guns was the primary determinant for the fear frame. 
This new visual specter of black protesters brandishing weapons contradicted the image of a nonviolent, religiously inflected civil rights movement or a harmless, predominantly white counterculture. By contrast, Todd Gitlin noted that early national news accounts of Students for a Democratic Society offered a respectful analysis of the group's politics and approach, quote, heralding the emergence of a new student left. No media herald the arrival of the Black Panther Party. A short United Press International dispatch published the next day said that Governor Reagan ordered a review of his security in his office at the Capitol in the wake of the Panthers' protest. Reagan's fear response added authority and specificity to the day's events. The story recapped the events of the previous day, describing the Panthers as, quote, an armed band of Negroes who intruded or stalked or burst into the assembly carrying loaded shotguns, rifles, and pistols. The Panthers were to appear in state superior court that day to face charges of felony conspiracy. The four-paragraph article noted with some irony that the standing law in California only prohibited carrying concealed weapons without a permit, not ones displayed in the open. Thus, despite the furor, it did not appear on the outset that the Panthers had broken any state laws. However, six out of the original 24 Panthers arrested in the incident, including Bobby Seale, would eventually serve jail time under a little-used section of state law that forbade disruption of legislative sessions. In the Sunday edition of the week's New York Times, the paper's editorial board had already decided what stance to take regarding the Black Panthers. The issue's leading editorial, titled The Spirit of Lawlessness, condemned the group for their tactics and style of protest. Ironically, the New York Times followed the lead of the Oakland Tribune in conflating the Panthers and Stokely Carmichael with Southern white supremacists. By framing the Panthers as extremists in the vein of the Ku Klux Klan, the news media demonstrated an inability to see beyond action, to distinguish between the donning of a white hood and the wearing of a black beret as symbolic practices. The Times editorial writer was unwilling to differentiate between the Panthers' assertive demands for civil rights and white Alabama segregationists' mission to deny the franchise to black citizens. This framing revealed the raw fear the Panthers inspired. These editorials assumed the Black Panthers sought to terrorize whites in the same way the Klan terrorized blacks. In a few days since the Sacramento protests, the New York Times writers were now experts on the Panthers, and this position contributed to the paper's characterization of the group. The editorial denounced the fact that, quote, military training, racist conspiracy theories, and a contempt for the law have spread among some Negroes, particularly the Black Panthers. A, uh, quote, spirit of lawlessness pervades the American scene, despite the fact that laws protect liberty as long as certain unalienable individual rights are secure. Blacks might be justified in their anger about racial discrimination, stated the Times, but they should rely on, quote, lawful means of protest in the tradition of groups such as the NAACP. With this pronouncement, the pattern was set for future treatment of the Black Panthers by the press. The editorial's tone was both paternalistic and harsh. Irritated with this new breed of black activists, and certain that the Panthers were wrong in their expression of dissent. The New York Times assumed that the Panthers' strategy in Sacramento was unlawful, although it was unclear what laws they had broken. This was a group to be criticized, shunned, and even silenced. As the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense continued to organize and recruit members, massive urban rebellions spread across the country. 
The summer of 1967 was marked by more than two dozen uprisings that rocked major American cities, including Detroit, Newark, Tampa, Cincinnati, and Atlanta. In Detroit, scene of the worst rioting, federal authorities called up 15,000 National Guardsmen and state police to stem the violence. The crisis devastated Detroit, killing 43, injuring thousands, and leaving behind destroyed homes and businesses. This red-hot summer followed a troubling pattern. Since 1964, African Americans and other minorities expressed their grievances by pillaging and burning the communities where they lived, with the most notorious being the Watts Riot of 1965. The catalyst for this backlash was often incidents of police harassment or brutality, and they were fueled by massive unemployment, substandard housing, and a general sense of hopelessness. During July and August, the pages of the New York Times were filled with dramatic accounts of the rebellions. Photographs portrayed tense standoffs between rioters and National Guardsmen, or the burning remains of urban communities. The newspaper published several feature stories during this period that sought to interrogate African Americans' deep anger and despair. Among these stories was a lengthy feature in the paper's Sunday magazine titled, quote, The Call of the Black Panthers, which helped to launch the group's cult of celebrity. It was written by Saul Stern, an editor at Ramparts Magazine, rather than a New York Times staffer. Ramparts, a slick, widely circulated magazine of the new left, had several ties to the Panthers. Eldridge Cleaver had been a regular correspondent, and Stern was a former Berkeley activist who knew the key players. Stern's article offered a generally sympathetic analysis of the Panthers' politics while using personalities, particularly Newton and Seal, as recognizable symbols. The Panthers had become a commodity. The first page was illustrated with the Panthers' own iconography, a photograph of Huey Newton seated in a fan chair holding a rifle in one hand and a spear in another, and a photo of Bobby Seale resplendent in the Panther uniform of beret and black jacket. The Times helped to make the Newton photo an internationally recognized image as it later adorned posters, book jackets, and the Black Panther newspaper. The six-page story discussed the Panthers' political inspirations, including photos of Marcus Garvey, Mao Zedong, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Malcolm X, under the caption, quote, required reading. Stern attempted to allay readers' fears, asserting that, quote, despite Huey Newton's fatalism, the Panthers are not simply nihilistic terrorists. And he argued that the Panthers were a manifestation of black Americans' unspoken frustrations. The article suggested that while many considered the Panthers a radical fringe group, they had a growing following. This was underscored with a photo captioned, Followers, showing the armed Panther delegation at Sacramento flanked by black male and female party members. Gone was the language of fear and condemnation. The Panthers were not characterized as violent intruders or a national threat. There were numerous quotes from Newton and Seale, and anecdotal material about their families and background, thus humanizing these previously fearsome individuals. The Times had commissioned an article that diverged dramatically from the tone of its earlier coverage. Five days later, a short wire service article in the Times reported that a California judge had sentenced some of the Sacramento protesters to up to three months in jail, officially ending the story of this event. In October, almost a year to the date of the Panthers' founding, a young Oakland police officer named John Fry was killed in an exchange of gunfire with Huey Newton. The Oakland Tribune announced the story with a front-page skyline head in bold letters announcing, quote, 
officers slain, Panther leader wounded. For many, the prophecy had been realized. The gun-wielding Panthers acted out their violent drama with the worst possible outcome, the death of a police officer. The Tribune provided local readers with an intensive, detailed account of the incident based on police department information. Fry and his partner had stopped Newton's car and asked him and another occupant to get out. Somehow shots began to fly, and when the smoke cleared, Fry was dead, his partner and Newton were injured, and the Panthers were officially enemies of the state. An accompanying photo showed the police car, noting this was where Fry, quote, was found dead in a pool of blood. Other grisly details were also outlined. For the next few weeks, the Tribune kept the case on page one as, quote, a mystery witness to the shooting was pursued. Newton was transferred from the hospital to San Quentin Prison, and he made his first court appearance. Local television outlets also gave the story considerable attention. CBS affiliate KPIX broadcast a feature in which a reporter was filmed on a dismal Oakland street replete with empty storefronts and ramshackle buildings, to recount the sketchy details of the shooting. Quote, a pool of blood marks the spot where 23-year-old police officer Fry was fatally wounded from multiple gunshots, said the reporter, who noted the victim left behind a three-year-old daughter. There was little new information offered in this piece, but it gave visual evidence to the bleak surroundings in which the shooting took place. The New York Times reported this development in a scant four paragraphs on page 86. But when Newton was arrested and charged with the murder, the national press began to cover the Panthers with vigor, and Newton became a household name. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. 